Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, once again for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, Father, and how it reveals your character. We ask, Lord, as we consider Genesis 18 this morning, Lord, that uh, you would illuminate our minds. Thank you, Father, that you are an approachable God and that uh, you call us to come near to you in Christ. We ask, Father, that he would increase in our lives and that we would understand you more fully, Father, because of what you have revealed about yourself in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 18, and uh, I'm going to give out a couple of uh, scripture passages. So first off, the uh, Genesis 18, we'll divide that in half, and... Uh, So what's that going to be? 20, 16 verses per. Boy, oh boy. Okay, Chris, nice. I got somebody. I got a taker. Uh, small victories. And that'll be uh, Genesis uh, 18, 1 through 16, 17 through 32. Thank you, Logan. And then I've got also a couple other uh, passages uh, Vicki, can you read um, Romans 4, 16 through 25, and then, uh, sorry, <laughs> good, uh, Romans 9, 6 through 9. Okay. Romans 9, 6 through 9. Genesis 18, 1 through 16, please. Thank you. 
time appointed, I will return unto thee, according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men rose up from thence and went toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that is come to them. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the lives for all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. He said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. Abraham returned to his place. Thank you. <clears throat> You'll remember back to uh, Genesis 13, where... Uh, uh, Abraham found himself in Mamre. He made an altar to the Lord. This is after he ended up, they ended up, Lot and him said, you take the left, I'll take the right, back and forth. The Lord said, you get it all. And uh, then the uh, he made an altar to the Lord. So here is where Mamre is. You can see right here, present day, that's um, Jerusalem. And uh, so... Mamre is, you know, southwest, and uh, we find out later on that uh, he's going to be able to see. He has quite a panorama view 
from where he is, even though he's in the plain of uh, Hebron right now. And uh, that's, that's kind of the, the situation. And I'll just note, down here is the supposed location of Zoar and Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain that we've talked about before. Uh, we remember the large army that was down there and how Abraham ended up pursuing them so that he could get Lot back, and that's helpful for, to be able to explain uh, where we're going here uh, in the next couple of chapters. So, <clears throat> Abraham has some visitors, and uh, God once again speaks to Abraham. He speaks to him uh, directly, possibly to get uh, Sarah's attention, and uh, so that's going to be helpful as we go along to explain kind of uh, her involvement in the whole thing. Three men, and uh, Abraham says, quickly, Sarah, let's, uh, let's have a feast. And uh, we've seen this before, that uh, Abraham demonstrates hospitality, and uh, it's still a Middle Eastern thing. We'll maybe see uh, an excess of that in the next chapter with Lot, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that for uh, a couple of weeks from now. By the way, uh, you'll, get, you'll get to see Alan again next week since we won't be here. But, um, but hospitality, what is hospitality? Hospitality in a biblical definition isn't just having your friends over, friends from the church, friends that can have you over to their house. These are travelers, uh, at least, you know, as they present themselves to Abraham. They don't have the ability to do the quid pro quo that, you know, you have me over, I'll have you over, you know, we'll do this back and forth. That's not what this type of hospitality is. I, um, one of the, uh, uh, the gal for uh, World Magazine, uh, Marvin, I mean, uh, yeah, Marvin Olasky's wife, Susan, wrote a, a book, um, They Call Us Infidels. She, uh, there was a colleague that, of hers that was over a, a guy that could actually go around Afghanistan and whenever he presented himself to the different people over there, they had to take him in. They have this, this cultural kind of mandate that you take in strangers and you take care of the stranger. And I mentioned, uh, you know, that when we were in uh, Sudan, our car broke down and we had two villagers. We're out in the middle of nowhere. We're like stressed out. You know, this is, this is desert and my dad takes off. And uh, so I'm yelling at my brother because he broke the axle. And But <clears throat> two people come over to us, and they're sitting there. We can't speak their language. They can't speak, up, speak our language. But uh, they're taking care of us. They're exercising hospitality. I suppose there is a way that we could have repaid them, but uh, that was something beyond me at that, at that particular time. That just didn't fit in my brain. That's the kind of hospitality that we're, that we're talking about. And that will help in a couple of weeks to be able to explain uh, what, uh, what's going on maybe in uh, Lot's mind at least uh, a little bit. The providence of God, Abraham acknowledges. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of the text today. So um, in uh, verse 5, since you have come to your servant... 
There's a recognition on the part of Abraham that they are intentional about coming to Abraham. And that that is inherent in that in that little statement there that uh, it isn't, well, you just happen to be passing along the way. You happen to be coming over to our place and, hey, we'll uh, we'll take care of you. But there's this uh, kind of, yeah, understanding that uh, they're actually there with a purpose in mind. So um, Abraham has that that recognition. Okay. Three men, three men. This is very interesting. Uh, three men, and yet Abraham ends up bowing down to uh, at, at least one of them. Uh, this could be a form of, you know, he's uh, welcoming them. He's trying to, you know, pay obeisance to them and say, I respect you just because you're a foreigner, and now I have you in my house or, you know, near my tent. And uh, so... Uh, it also could be a recognition of who they who they actually are, and this this bowing down is uh, the first mention of this. And normally, throughout the rest of Scripture, where we're going to see this this particular phrase is that you bow down what in worship. Okay, so that's the this is a precursor to that understanding of of that word uh, or that phrase bowing down. And uh, so we have some uh, vector, I guess, in uh, the direction of what that means. Three men, three men. Well, let's look at the text and see what the text actually has to say about these men. We're going to find out that uh, in verse 16, then the men set out from there and they look down towards Sodom. We're going to see in 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. We see that phrase. That doesn't necessarily help our case. But uh, then if we go down to 19, you see that uh, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the, the evening. So we have this kind of tap dance in between men, angels. And uh, I'm going to go with what Calvin taught me, that uh, these are angels. Two of them are, uh, the, are angelic beings, and one of them is the uh, incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And that's why he calls him Lord, and that's why he bows down before him. Um, there's justification for that. He's entertaining angels. He's entertaining angels, maybe maybe unawares. Maybe he has a, an idea because of who these who these people are, who these men are, according to the text. Uh, but uh, it seems that um, there's at least some question. But uh, at least for the text, we know that uh, there's at least two angels that are part of this this um, entourage. And uh, they're making their way through. And we have then the certainty of the promise. So we go down to um, okay. 
sorry. Down in verse 10, I will surely return to you. We've seen this construction before. Remember, in eating, God told Adam, you will eat. The eat, eat. Or in blessing, I will bless you, Abraham. Blessing, blessing. And that repetition of that particular word in the Hebrew means emphatic. And uh, again, we see that in uh, returning, I will return. Or surely I will return as the uh, text translates it there. So this is the certainty of the promise. I will come back and uh, Sarah will have a son. So uh, this is, uh, they know, or Abraham knows because of what's being said here that, uh, again, this is a re-emphasis, a restatement of the promise, and now the more specific statement of the, the promise. So... We continue on. He says, uh, where is your wife? That's an odd question. (laughs) That kind of gets my hackles up a little bit if somebody asks me where my wife is. Number one, how do they know that I'm married? How do they know that Abraham's married? You can see evidence of, you know, uh, female presence in the tent or around the tent or something like that. And yet this is a very direct question. And Abraham answers the the question. It's not like this uh, takes him off guard or that uh, he's, you know, going to shy away from the answer. She's in the tent. And uh, so then... Uh, then we have the, the promise given to, to them again. Uh, Sarah's listening. Sarah hears her name. And uh, Sarah then realizes that, you know, what's, what's going on here. And then there's the explanation from the text that Sarah and Abraham were old and advanced in years. And um, we have the emphasis of the, the barrenness of uh Sarah's womb, that she's past the age of uh, childbearing, that she's well past the age of uh, childbearing. And about this time next year, the text literally says that when the season lives. Okay, so all of the translations translate this particular verse as some, something equivalent to uh, about this time next year. In other words, we look to the future in a year. This is when uh, this is going to happen. And yet in the text itself, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a, the son of a Hebrew scholar. But um, the season, when the season lives, could point to the fact that we're talking about here or they, uh, that God is talking about uh this thing that happens with women, that they have children, that they conceive, and uh, it could be that this is actually pointing to when that season, that season of life when women have children, that, uh, that that's going to live again and, uh, or live for the first time. Um, 
and when that season lives, that uh, Sarah's going to have uh, have a child. That's a possibility. Uh, I'm not going to fall on my sword over that, but uh, that's one of the um, one of the possible ways to look at that. Sarah laughs. Sarah laughs derisively. She gets punished for it, and yet we know that God is faithful. God. Um, she ends up uh, getting the the rebuke from from God right off the bat. She gets called on it. She says, "I didn't lie," and the commentators are going to say, at least uh, one of them, Chrysostom, says that in the fact that she said, "I didn't lie," she actually acknowledges the fact that that is uh, a statement that is worth denying, or you know, I didn't lie. But that implies then the, the veracity of that uh, particular statement and that that is actually something that Sarah needs to ascribe to. Lying would be bad. Lying about that particular event would be bad. But uh, she ends up uh, saying that she, that she didn't lie and then implicitly acknowledges the, the righteousness of the, the statement itself. She's going to get a reminder <clears throat> Isaac, laughter, that uh, this laughter, her derisive laughter, her laughter of scorn, that uh, she's going to get that uh, as a reminder that uh, in laughing, she laughed, she didn't believe God. But it's very interesting that uh, when we look at Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, 11 specifically, that uh, by faith, it was Sarah who was enabled to uh, bear a child, even though she was past her time, even though she was past the age. The Bible says, you know, uh, the author to the Hebrews says that uh, she was a woman of faith, just like you know, we found out about righteous Lot and uh, Peter's definition of, of Lot. And we're going to acknowledge that definition. Uh, we're going to acknowledge that in the end, she believes and she acts according to that. But we have some, uh, some New Testament references to be able to bring in and, and help to fill out. Or actually, this particular section helps our understanding as we go to the, the New Testament. And so in Romans uh, 4, 16 through 25, we get the, uh, we're talking about specifically, Paul in uh, Romans is, he's talked about that uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's uh, even the Jews are, um, are not righteous before God. And we come into the example of Abraham that uh, Paul uses in uh, Romans uh, 4. And we find ourselves in the, the middle of this. And this understanding of the barrenness of Sarah's womb, that God can call something out of nothing, that that is the, the essence of faith. In fact, it's part of the definition of faith that uh this section of scripture is used and uh, used over several different points in the uh, the New Testament. So let's take a look at those uh, passages now. And first off, uh, Romans 4, 16 through 25, please. 
My uh, emphasis in that section is obviously on uh, verse uh, 19 and on uh, uh, 20, the uh, deadness of Sarah's womb, the uh, barrenness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver knowing his own body. He didn't waver knowing uh, the body of his, of his wife, but uh, he was strengthened in his faith. And that is the essence of faith. It's not believing that, uh, it's not believing in something that is not true or something that is illogical. It's putting your faith into something that is above or beyond you. It's putting your trust in the faith of, uh, in your faith in God. And um, so, and now uh, the specific use of the, the quote in uh, Romans 9 Verses 6 through 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Thank you. <clears throat> so specifically that uh, quote, specifically quoted by Paul in the, the New Testament, in his segment of Romans where he's trying to, trying to contrast Israel by faith and Israel the, uh, the nation. And uh, difficult passage of scripture and yet... Um, it's by faith and belief in the promise, the promise of God that is fulfilled uh, by faith in the, uh, the Savior to come. Okay. And then, any questions so far? Any, any comments? Okay. Then there's this interlude. And there's the... the Angels are on a search-and-destroy mission. They're going down to Sodom, and they are heading in the direction of Sodom. God asks the question, should I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Okay, he sees where the angels are going, and um, so he's already made known to Abraham that the people of Israel are going to be enslaved for 400 years, and uh, then be freed with the great work of God. But now we, we see the more immediate context of uh, the destruction of a city for the sins of the, uh, of the people. And that's where we find ourselves. God, we find here, is 
uh, our approachable God. Oops, there we go. Lot needs an intermediary. Well, let's say that uh, Lot is provided an, an intermediary. This isn't something that maybe Lot would have recognized. Abraham has some inkling of this because he's already rescued Lot out of his uh, enslavement to the uh, the largest standing army at the at the time, and uh, so Lot needs an intermediary. We also parallel thought we also need an intermediary intermediary an intercessor. Uh, we need the Lord Jesus to intercede for us before God because of our sins. And that's why he's going, or the angels are going to go to Sodom and uh, destroy Sodom. So uh, Abraham, in Abraham's approach to God, as the, uh, the text says here, he's not concerned about his own skin. He's not concerned about, you know, uh, Hey, can you improve my life a little bit? Can you make it so that I maybe have a house or I, you know, something? I don't, really don't like this tent thing. Uh, can you do something for me? That isn't Abraham's approach. Abraham is concerned about his cousin Lot once again, and uh, he's interceding for for Lot. Okay, and he says, "Will you indeed?" Sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Who questions God? Who goes before a holy God and says, God, will you be just? Who does that? Who does that? Who allows for that? Who invites that into his presence? This is the big God, the almighty God, the God who said, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. This is that God. The big God and the little Abraham. The guy who was like a bug. That's the orientation that we have here. But God allows him, he calls him into his presence. If you look down right before uh, chapter 19, what you see in the text there is this is what God started. God started the conversation and God ends the conversation and he finished and he went his way after he was done speaking to Abraham. So it's important in this to say that this is by God's institution that he invites Abraham into his presence. We have God being approached and saying, how about 50? 50 righteous. Would you think that a city could be saved for 50 righteous? And yet God says, I'll give you 50. 
And his, in his negotiating skills, then Abraham comes and says, okay, I've got 50. Five less than 50 is kind of the same thing. You know, let's say that uh, they numerically average out to the same thing. The mathematicians in the room would disagree with that. But that's the position that he is taking. He's saying 50 is the same as 45, God. You've already given me 50, and now we're going to assume, uh, assume the next step. And he allows him that. And he gives him that. And now we go 40, 30, 20. We go down to 10. And uh, shall the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of, sorry, uh, do what is right? That statement, just like in the English, just like in the Greek, in the Hebrew, it's the same construction. We have, when you say something in the negative, it means, well, of course. Of course, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. That's like a no kidding statement. So that's what linguistically that, that construction means. So he's negotiating with God, and God allows him to be approached in that kind of way. Again, Abraham is interceding for Lot. He's not interceding for himself. He's playing the little I intermediary, uh, reflecting for us the intermediate position uh, the, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here the benefit that is given to the, uh, the unrighteous or the ungodly or the Gentile, uh, those that are, that are brought in, that, the nation, the, that if there were 50, 40, 30, if there were 10 righteous in the city, then God would have spared that city. There weren't. There was one. And that's Lot. And Lot and his family then end up being saved. Uh, we'll look at that the next time. But the benefit to the ungodly of the, uh, of the righteous. I never liked, when I was in my, my Air Force career, I never uh, liked the fact that it seemed like God took the Christians and kind of uh, put them in various different squadrons, flights, and I didn't feel like I had, you know, uh, as much fellowship as I would have liked to have had. But I noticed that, like the policeman on the beat, that when I was with the guys, that there was less sin that went on. Uh, not because of me, because I tried to do the woodworking routine and, and you know, f uh, fade into the background, but God uses his people to be salt and light, even in, uh, you know, maybe my, my lack of desire to, to be more of a faithful witness. And yet God uses that. He uses that to, to restrain evil, much like the policeman on the beat uh, or the presence of the, the U.S. military throughout the, the world. There's other places in Scripture that we can point to, and uh, I'll just throw up uh, a few of these, and uh, these are all from the Psalms. We might even think of Psalm 88, that there's not this resolution like there is with all of the other Psalms when God, when, uh, God allows himself to be approached. 
Why have you forsaken me? You know, why have you rejected me? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quoting Psalm 22 on the cross. And uh, Psalm 88, just the fact that the psalmist is going before the God of the universe, the God who forgives, is uh, testimony to the posture of the, the psalmist. And we're, there's many other references about we, us, as sinful creatures, approaching the, the holy God and going before him. Um, and I'll just uh, flash up here Tertullian on prayer. Prayer is alone that which vanquishes God, but Christ has willed that it be operative for no evil. And so it knows nothing save how to transform the weak, to restore the sick, to purge the possessed, to open prison bars, to loose the bonds of the innocent. Likewise, it washes away faults, repels temptations, extinguishes persecutions, consoles the faint-spirited, cheers the high-spirited, escorts travelers, appeases waves, makes robbers stand aghast, nourishes the poor, governs the rich, upraises the fallen, arrests the falling, confirms the standing. So God calls us into his presence through the avenue of prayer, and we can go go before him with all kinds of prayers and requests, as Paul says in Ephesians. We are not limited in our approach and even our frustrations and our accusations. God hears as we take them to him in prayer. God uses uh, Abraham's intercession for Lot to save Lot, to save ultimately his daughters. But uh, we serve in that same kind of intermediary position as well before a hurting and dying world. So God hears our prayers that are offered in faith. Questions, comments? Vicki. Thank you. Abraham operates outside of himself. Uh, he's, you know, in, in one sense, he sees the deadness. The scriptures make clear that he sees the deadness of himself. And yet this is all happening because of what God has done. God has enlivened the, the dead. Bruce. I thought some of the vows that we're not saved by the purity of our faith. Some vows in Sarah and in Abraham. The New Testament says it doesn't waver, but the Old Testament sure seems to show something that's a little different. Which highlights, I think, that aspect. Ourselves worked up to a pure state for salvation. 
Other thoughts? Always fascinating to and humbling and, and beautiful to know just the patience of God mm. dealing with us. Uh, you brought it out well, just God's patience in dealing with Abraham as it's negotiating, it's even being a little brash and saying, Shall not the judge of the earth be right? Uh, you see that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, mm. David, uh, Jonah. Very humbling thing. We have to remember that God's exactly the same way with us and our, our failings. Uh, that same patience is shown. Yeah. None of us can say on the journey of faith that we've arrived. And look to me. Paul says, look to me as I look to Christ. But there's that recognition that uh, that's a, a progress. Mark. It, uh, it kind of strikes me that uh, those words written so long ago could read like tomorrow's newspaper. Mm-hmm. I mean, a few chapters before, you had the Tower of Babel squashed. So this utopian idealism was just eliminated. Mm-hmm. And the idea of nation states was propagated. And then, then the, the verses that you brought forth. Absolutely. I didn't uh, take off the, I didn't uh, go in the direction of the, uh, the theme, but uh, uh, dare I say, Sarah is a woman. She's a pregnant woman. She's a woman. You know, a woman, she's not a pregnant person. You know, she, persons that have wombs, uh, no. the, tie, the, the way of women, the text says, the way of women is uh, was not with her so that's a that's a very good way of saying that uh, women are the ones that uh, are allowed to call to bear offspring not men any other thoughts genie It's interesting that he didn't get down on his knees. He didn't, you know, I mean, he bowed before the Lord earlier in the chapter, but uh, there isn't that 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 uh, maybe assumed posture of prayer that's, uh, you know, we can come before the, the Lord in all kinds of ways, standing up, sitting down, 
flare prayers like Nehemiah, you know, uh, before the king. So um, prayer happens on all occasions and with all different types of postures. I fully agree with setting aside time and bowing our heads uh, to eliminate distractions. But it is interesting that he's like standing before God. Okay. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Abraham. And we thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of our Savior and his intercession for us. We thank you, Father, that uh, in spite of our sinfulness, that you still hear the prayers of our intercessor. And uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that your will would be done in our lives as we look to Christ and the author and finisher of our faith. Father, prepare us to worship you. Prepare us, Father, to sit under the preached word. Father, encourage us, enlighten us, admonish us, Father, and point us back to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.